0: Welcome to the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review, where we cover all things national security, military, foreign policy, and history. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Chris Bull. Today's guests are Rhett Resendez, Paula Mercado, and Sircar Desayekedu to talk about the 2022 U.S. national security strategy from the perspective of next generation national security practitioners. Rhett is a first year security studies student and an event reporter for the Georgetown Security Studies Review. He is from McLean, Virginia, and graduated from the Virginia Military Institute in May as a history major. Rhett is a full-time security studies student concentrating in terrorism and substate violence. Paula is a first generation Latina from Arizona. She's a graduate student at Georgetown University studying U.S. national security policy. She is also the first ever Security Studies student to become a McHenry Global Public Service Fellow at Georgetown's Institute for the Study of Diplomacy. Sarkar is a first-year security studies student and a research assistant at Georgetown's Center for Security and Emerging Technology. He is from Calcutta, India, and has graduated with a degree in history from Ashuka University in New Delhi. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us on the Precision Guided Podcast. Well, let's dive right in. Rhett, let's, let's start with you. What do you think of the national security strategy? Do any items stick out to you specifically?
1: Yeah, generally, I liked it. Um, I like the kind of consistent emphasis on multilateralism in it and working with our partners. Uh, The biggest thing that stuck out to me in terms of its overall scope is it's just super ambitious. Um, So I think that emphasis on cooperation will make it a lot more feasible because, I mean, it's got a ton of goals and plans for the United States and what matters to us right now. Uh, Kind of following on that, I think it was interesting um, how often The document mentioned that countries don't have to be like the United States to work with America, not a super regime type oriented approach, which I think is smart because it gives us a broader pool of allies to work with. I think
0: it's a powerful point. Uh, Paula, do you have any thoughts on this?
2: Yeah, no, of course. Thanks for having me here today, by the way. So, of course, like any of the prior national security strategies, um, you you definitely hear that this is the unprecedented times. We're facing all these new issues. it makes me wonder if we have ever been in precedent times before. Um, but a couple of things did stick out to me this time around. I do feel like national security strategies typically try to encompass all of the issues at some point, And in the end, the strategy does get lost. Uh, I think it could be valuable to frame um, the strategy realistically and admit that even though we may be able to address all these issues at once, that our objectives probably won't be met because we're just not capable of implementing the change we want to see by devoting our time to addressing everything at once. I do like the shift that was made between the interim national security strategy and the new one, uh, specifically about how the good versus evil tone of democracy in one corner and autocracy in the other. Um, The new strategy seems to take this oversimplification into account and see that the international system is much more dynamic than just one particular fight. In fact, I think that this shift in perception drives a lot of how the US will see potential allies and partnerships or other relationships with states moving forward. I do think it may be a step forward in the sense that the US can come to terms with nations with different historical, cultural, or ideological perspectives um, that can actually work with one another. I also think it helps us approach our foes in ways where we don't turn the world stage into proxy wars and have states um, get implicated negatively along the way. So I think there's, I think that's kind of what I took away uh, from from that talk.
0: Thanks, Paula. I uh, I like how you and Rhett both kind of picked up on the same thread uh, in reading the strategy, and I, I think that's very telling in terms of you know where the strategy stands and you know what we see as kind of the future uh, generation of security practitioners. Now I want to move over to uh, Sirkar. What what were your thoughts uh, in reading the strategy?
3: First of all, thanks, Chris, for having me on the podcast. And I think just to bring in a bit of the foreign perspective and my own perspective as an Indian, I think it was uh, very reassuring to see that the US is still committed to seeing China as its main strategic competitor in the long run. And in particular, in the past, we've seen how issues that are proximate, issues that have come up in the now, have often affected the US's ability to handle the longer term strategic threats. I think when uh, Megan O'Sullivan was talking to Jake Sullivan during the NSS presentation at Georgetown, she brought up how the Bush administration, um, in its quest to fight the war on terror, had neglected several other strategic threats. So I think from that perspective, it is nice to see how despite the Russia threat sort of being so difficult for the US to navigate, it remains committed to China. And I think this aligns with what countries in the Indo-Pacific, specifically India, views as its national security as well, because China is an overwhelming threat for us. So I think that was really reassuring. And I think barring that, I think I also picked up on like just some of the ambitiousness of this document that Rhett was talking about, there are very interesting contradictions that you see in this document. While it does talk about promoting democracy, on the one hand, there is also that aspect of engaging with non-democratic countries that still abide by the rules-based order. You have China, who the US wants to compete with, but also maintain a, a sort of a nice and Um, a a good dialogue on key transnational issues. And I think what will be interesting to see is whether the U.S. foreign policy and defense bureaucracy can deal with those inherent contradictions in this national security strategy.
0: Thank you, Zakhar. I think that was an extremely well-put point, and uh, we do appreciate your perspective on that, especially as a um, foreign national looking uh, outward, inward, as we tend to look inward. So moving right along, Paula, I wanted to ask of the threats mentioned in the national security strategy, what what do you think is the most critical to maintaining our national security?
2: That's a great question. It's hard to kind of prioritize certain threats over others, especially when the definition of security is getting broadened by, you know, new threats that are arising. You know, it's been mentioned a couple of times uh, within the new national security strategy, You have the terms, you know, COVID, um, food insecurity, climate change. And I believe that those will pose much longer, uh, much bigger implications moving on in the future. And it's kind of hard to balance that with what is on the table already with Russia and China. And I think it's gonna be a difficult balancing act, trying to prioritize either or when they're both going on simultaneously in the future. I guess it's going to be something that future administrations are going to have to take into account. That if there are certain uh, climate threats going on, that they're going to have to juggle that between whatever geopolitical uh, threats are also out there. So I don't think it's a matter of you know which one's more important than other, than the than the others. It's more of a matter of how are you going to be able to balance um, multiple threats at once now that you know the term security is being brought into a lot of different issues.
0: Very good point. That's a very good point. Um, Rhett, what are, what are your thoughts?
1: I agree with you, Paula. And I I liked how the document kind of separated um, more of our competition-based security threats versus transnational threats that, like you said, have kind of been coming more to the forefront between COVID and climate change and all that. So I appreciated that sort of delineation. And it is hard to pick like the most critical challenge. I think at the forefront of kind of the literature right now, it seems like the competition with China which I think the document generally reflects but I think even broader than that sort of a theme you see in the strategy a lot is um, the most important thing being the international norms and uh, making sure that those are respected and followed so I think it's less that China's powerful so much as it's kind of undermining some of the structure that's already here I think we see that with Russia's invasion of Ukraine It's probably not a huge deal to U.S. national security because of any advantage it gives Russia militarily or politically, but more so uh, it would be because of the precedent that the undermining of those norms and sovereignty would set. And I think you see that again um, with the strategy's emphasis on being willing to cooperate with competitors so long as they're working towards kind of global progress and within international laws and norms. So I see that as as kind of the, the most critical issue is making sure those rules are followed equitably.
0: Rules-based order. Makes sense. Makes sense. Sir Car, same to you.
3: I think I will be taking a bit more um, of an explicit position on what I think is the most critical for U.S. national security. And there, I think I tend to agree with the idea that the transnational threats that they were talking about, um, food security, like, you know, the pandemic, these are the uh, most critical threats to U.S. national security. And why I say this is because one of the fundamental duties of national security is to protect the prosperity and the rights of citizens in the U.S. Right Now, whether the U.S. will fight a a war with China and Russia, I mean, it, it remains to be seen. And these wars do affect the fundamental economic conditions that people face in the U.S. But On the other hand, right, like, you know, these problems related to climate change, I think, I think they impose um, a very uh, significant cost in the near term to like, you know, the prosperity of US, uh, like, you know, citizens, and also, I think the world as well, right? I mean, you just have, you just experienced this series of very catastrophic uh, climate events that have uh, cost billions of dollars in damage, right? Like, you know, and it is right there at your doorstep. And I think why it is important also is because you need to incorporate the fact that large parts of the world do not tend to think in terms of geopolitical competition, right? They're not thinking in terms of, are we going to side with the US, Russia, or China, right? several countries across the world are more concerned with, you know, how do I ensure access to food for my people? How do I prevent, like, you know, um, uh, the, the rise in sea levels from destroying large parts of arable land, right? So I think in that perspective, like, you know, this is a more critical issue, because it's not just a US uh, issue. I think it, it it's an issue that affects the world, and it does not have boundaries, uh, per se. And it, It it reflects the need to cooperate with all other stakeholders, including countries that are uh, competitors and competing with the U.S. right now in the realm of national security. So, um, yeah, a bit more of an explicit stance.
0: It appears as though there's a a thread appearing amongst uh, the three of y'all in terms of the implications of climate change touching just a little bit of everything and anything and the kind of existential crisis that follows that. So actually, Sirkar, sticking with you, I'd like to ask you, uh, zooming out a little bit again on the strategy, do you think anything was missing from the strategy? Is anything overlooked or underrepresented perhaps?
3: So Chris, on, on on that note, I think one thing that I found missing was the role of businesses and big corporations in the entire question of national security. Now, if you look at one of the foundational documents that influenced the NSS was this um, document called the Foreign Policy for the Middle Class that was co-authored by Sullivan and some other uh, members of his administration. And it spoke about how, like you know uh, this entire on the question of making America more competitive, making sure there's domestic prosperity. It mentioned how the middle class, right? like, you know, in America has not been, positively affected by globalization. Rather, it's the corporations that have benefited the most. And I mean, gradually, we are seeing that in international conflict, like, you know, with with Ukraine, for example, we're seeing these sort of corporations play an outsized role in influencing the way things are going. I mean, the entire question of Starlink and Elon Musk, right, like, you know, as as one popular example, right? And I was just interested in seeing that given that, like, you know, I mean, this document was so focused on increasing the prosperity um, of Americans in general, right, Um, that it left out where these corporations sort of fit in. Uh, to American foreign policy and how they affect these goals of reinvigorating American industry as well. So um, a a little bit of a deviation from my emphasis on climate change and other issues, but I thought that was an interesting area where the document did not say a lot. I think
0: that's very well put.
3: Paula?
2: I kind of want to go off of some of the points that were mentioned before, especially when it comes to a foreign policy for the middle class. Ideally, I, I agree, um, but there's a part of me that's a bit cynical. Um, a lot of these corporations that have benefited, you know, have huge influence on the policies that are being made um, and putting put through. Um, and unfortunately, I see this quite commonly. The average American, um, you know middle class American is quite checked out. I don't see them. the you know, civic engagement and civic education, Is you know steadily going down in the U.S. despite um, a lot of what we see on social media. So I'm a bit cynical that we are going to be able to pursue a foreign policy for the middle class um, when the middle class isn't really advocating for that anymore. They're they're pretty mentally checked out. We can see this just um, in their support for Ukraine and sending aid to Ukraine. That's become a pretty contested subject nowadays in Congress. So I'm not sure where that's going to go. On the other hand, um, I did want to bring up two points that I uh, felt were kind of overlooked or underrepresented in the national security strategy. It does take a more regional approach. Um, So first, I've seen a lot of upheal about the reduced emphasis on the Middle East. I think that was a pretty big one that I saw all around. I wonder what the thinking was behind this on the national um, security team and or council especially given the recent increases in gas prices and how the administration will respond to this in the long run, uh, what our relationships are gonna look like with Saudi Arabia, for example. Um, And I also wonder if it has taken the time to craft a space where there can be closure from what has occurred in the Middle East, especially after uh, 9-11. So I wonder where there's some clarity as to why the Middle East was just not as emphasized as it has been for the past 20 years. for better or for worse, I just kind of wanted to see what the thought process was behind that. Um, of course, my second point is that Latin America is always an afterthought. I wish it wasn't like this, but um, that's just how our national security operates. It actually It doesn't actually matter, you know, whatever is going on at the southern border, unfortunately. It might always be used as a political prop, especially around election time. I know uh, both the two of us are from uh, Southwest United States. So, you know, perhaps this is a time where the lack of attention um, will provide the opportunity for Latin American states to build up and see what kind of player they want to be on the world stage. I think that's about the opportunity that I'm seeing from them, but I'm not surprised that like many times before Latin America just is an afterthought when it comes to our national security uh, priorities, unfortunately.
0: I think that is a a very good point talking about how you know our closest neighbors um, to the South uh, might be overlooked and maybe historically have, have and continue to be overlooked. So that's a very powerful point. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Rhett, to you.
1: Yeah. Well, I understand when you're trying to put out a strategy, there needs to be a level of prioritization. To me in this, it was China and climate change were probably the two things that were loudest to me. But I thought there was very little mentioned about terrorism, um, which I guess makes sense given we're out of Afghanistan. That's That's sort of a domain we're steering away from um, as we shift to great power competition. But I think there's been a rise of domestic, um, maybe not terrorists, but extremists at the very least. And I think a lot of countries are still struggling with international terrorists who may be uh, gaining more influence as we Kind of ramp down our counterterrorism operations. I just thought it was interesting that it seemed to be generally an afterthought. There were a couple mentions of it next to other issues, like sort of in a list. And there was that one small, um, it was like less than a page, I think, uh, section devoted to it. But I think it's still an issue, um, especially as the US pulls back from it a little bit. It could grow into a bigger issue. And I think uh, working with other countries uh, to help their counterterrorism capabilities would actually be a good opportunity to kind of practice some of that multilateralism, um, empowering their capabilities in countries like the Philippines uh, that might be able to work with us both in terms of strategic competition and have that sort of as a military partnership. So I just would have liked to see a little bit more about like what now, I think the only real tangible stuff I saw was over the horizon counterterrorism, but I I would have liked a little bit more clarification on what the administration's administration sees uh, there.
0: Right. I think you bring up a good point, Um, especially because our generation did grow up in the the post 9-11 world in which we were entirely focused on the counterterrorism efforts, all, you know, attention directed to uh, Middle East, North Africa, all of our our focus and attention. Um, and so to you know make this pivot to uh, great power competition once again, and seeing that not reflected in the strategy is definitely um, very telling. And, you know, I guess uh, a bit more to grasp for our generation, because it's kind of all we've known. We've grown up with this this world. But moving on, uh, Paula, I'd like to ask, as a next generation national security professional, um, what do you think the U.S. should be focusing more on?
2: Another great question, Chris. Thanks. start off with, the the new national security strategy did emphasize building up industrial policy, which means targeted investment in infrastructure, education, training, cybersecurity, and green energy. I think it's important that despite what we do pursue with our allies and in different partnerships across the world, I think it's just as important that we keep building up the U.S., um, and especially in areas where it's been severely lacking. Uh, We're definitely behind um, as a quote-unquote, you know, developed country, we fall behind in various areas of social policy. And when it comes to this, we really need to step it up and make sure that Americans have the opportunities to really compete on the world stage. So it's important to look inward so we can make sure that we're crossing off our boxes when we do, do look outside. I do also think that the new national security strategy is starting to highlight a host of issues that fit into the broader definition of security. Like I mentioned before, this goes from climate change to food insecurity. I'm glad to see that there has been a shift in that. I do believe that it's gonna play an even bigger role moving forward. And I'm glad that you know, there's a new series of you know, future professionals and next generation that are kind of taking a broader approach and saying, You know, it's not the typical conventional like military problem, but it's going to have implications everywhere. So let's start, you know, working um, within the interagency, within nonprofits, and even the private sector to figure this out. However, with that said, no matter what we do focus on, I think it's critical that we keep reassessing our approach to the implementation of our national security strategy. There's a balance between giving a path time to play out to see if it works. Versus you know seeing an action that's been chosen that's not right, and that's continu- and continuing to use that approach when it's not suitable to reaching our objectives, so I think that constant um, reassessment is really critical to see what's working, what's not, and what do we kind of keep need to p- keep pushing forward to see if anything comes out of it. We can't just you know make a choice and keep keep that going when it's just not working out for us. so I think it's important that we do that
0: I think that makes a lot of sense. Um- on the the reassessment point, uh, especially because we do live in a time and a, a place in which things are moving so quickly, and we need the government to move just about as quickly as we are. Um, and then to your point about you know kind of expanding security and expanding um, our engagements and our our available resources, it sounds like you're 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 saying moving beyond just a whole of government approach to a whole society approach um, to mobilize to you know meet these um, growing security concerns um, that we're facing. So I think that that's that's very very. Um, very keen. Um, Rhett, to you.
1: Sure. You know, it's funny. You were just talking about how we grew up kind of in that 9-11, post 9-11 era of counterterrorism. But I think what also came along with that is we're now kind of at the end of the unipolar moment. And I mean, you can decide wherever arbitrary point you think that ended. But um, I think in the future, our focus should be accepting that we don't have to be a unipole anymore, especially with such broad and difficult security challenges. I mean, just the breadth of what we've talked about already today. I don't think one country, despite the power of the U.S., can necessarily address all of those. So I think in the future, we really need to kind of focus on leaning into cooperation and that rules-based um, order. I thought the national security strategy talked a decent bit about the weaponization of commerce by you know some other actors. So I think energy will be a big part of that, which obviously we've seen the last couple of months um, with Russia. So I think there's also a large overlap there with climate change and working on modernizing our sort of energy industry internationally will help solve some of those big picture crises of people, states not sort of following the the norms and practices of the international community, if that makes sense. And then kind of sticking on the multilateralism theme I like to focus on deterrence with China and Russia in terms of military threat. Uh, I think that's a good way to sort of build partnership and capacity building without actually having to prepare for ideally a kinetic um, conflict with some of those powers. i think I think in the future it's just got to be a lot more spread out that maybe we can't necessarily handle all of this the most effectively by ourselves, and we need to focus on kind of building that that community of of rules and, you know, mutual
0: assistance. Rhett, you bring up an interesting point um, that uh, coincides well with our next uh, question in terms of uh, China and kind of building up that community. So recently, the United Kingdom designated China as, quote, a threat to its national security, while the United States continues to maintain China as a competitor, a quote, quote unquote, competitor. Do you think this is the right decision for the United States, Rhett?
1: I think so. Um... I mean, obviously, there are a lot of conflicting interests between us and the PRC, um, but to some extent, whether we like it or not, we will have to work alongside them. They're a huge economy. We're massive trading partners. I think instead of framing this as an in or out situation, I like the competitor approach.
0: Well, Rhett, Thank you for that. Um, Let's move on. Uh, Sarkar, what what are your thoughts on this uh, threat versus competitor um, situation?
3: So I think... Um, if I could echo what Red said, I think it is also the correct approach because I think uh, the stake for a country like the UK to make such an assertion is fundamentally different than the US, which like you know I mean, of course is the main competitor with China and the current like you know world order. So if the if the if the Americans come out and say something like this, of course, like you know the implications of that statement are, much more significant for the world order. And in addition to that, I think the U.S. is also dealing with a very precarious domestic situation right now with inflation, um, with a, a potentially turbulent midterm campaign, and generally high levels of polarization. And I think given these uh, circumstances... I don't think that the U S really needs to heighten the already tense relationship with China. And I think this, like, you know, I think it connects well with the fact that what would deeming China as a threat really do? Like, you know, how would it really benefit the um, American national security enterprise? Will it make it uh, more resolute or will it mobilize people? Um, I'm unconvinced by those arguments. And, um, uh, if I were to use my license as a non-U.S. citizen to engage in a bit of cynical thinking, uh, maybe this sort of term, uh, like terminology could have an impact on mobilizing uh, do- the domestic population because uh, I think the one area where Republicans and Democrats seem to agree is in uh, the China threat. But uh, yeah, that that I just thought I would um, indulge um, a bit of a wild fantasy for a change. But I think it's, it's a correct approach to label China as a competitor as opposed to a threat.
0: Well, thank you for your uh, perspective. I think that brings up some very, very good points in terms of uh, really what does the US gain from potentially designated China as a threat and the vast amount of unknown possibilities that could unfold from that, whether that be, you know, domestic consensus, whether that be international ripples, um, or so forth. Uh, But let's move on to Paula. Paula, what's your perspective on this?
2: Yeah, Chris, uh, well, really well said, everyone, especially, you know, with the parts where Republicans and Democrats agreeing that China is a competitor, but not really knowing how to address the competition with them. And I'm going to jump on the bandwagon as well and agree that, I think it was a good call to use competitor to frame our relationship with China. I think that the national security strategy was trying to balance both strategic competition and shared challenges between states, and that it was trying to leave some sort of nuance about how the US, U.S.'s relationship, relationships will play out in the next coming years. I think competitor allows the current relationship with China that China has with the U.S., and the rest of the world to continue to develop. I also think it helps signal to the rest of the international community that they're not gonna get caught in the crossfire between China and the US, but rather that that they're gonna have opportunities to be active participants, which may be appealing to them in the next coming years. So I think competitor was a, a good move for this national security strategy.
0: Paul, I think you put it uh, very well when you're saying it it kind of allows us an unconstrained approach to US-China relations. I think that that kind of uh, allows us the flexibility to see what unknown uh, possibilities exist in the future. On that note, I'd like to move to Rhett. The National Security Strategy outlines the US strategic approach to China and Russia as, quote, outcompete China and constrain Russia. Do you think this is the right approach?
1: Yeah, I generally think so. Um, And at risk of beating a dead horse, I think it also depends on partner countries. Um, I talked a tiny bit about this earlier, but the U.S. can really only invest in so many challenges at once. And as the strategy kind of repeats, China offers not only a military competitor, but a challenger across domains. So I think with that in mind, we need continued buy-in from potential partners. And I think that that has been one of the silver linings from the conflict in Ukraine. Personally, I was surprised at how much of the EU was willing to help share the burdens of that sort of mutual security, um, both military in terms of equipment, but also a huge economic burdens like we don't have here in the US because of it. Uh, so we need to continue to cultivate that sort of culture and expand those organizations. I think particularly in regard to China, which I see is a much more long term challenger because of, again, that that diversity of the competition it offers. We need participation from smaller countries outside of Europe that would allow us to invest in their infrastructure, um, maybe shared capacity building in terms of military to allow us to keep that global influence and keep spreading that rules-based order, Um, even if they're getting investments or working with China to some extent. I think we need to have kind of an altruistic approach to make this sustainable, but I think it's doable if if other countries are willing to sort of share in that
0: process. Very well put, Sir Car.
3: Thanks, Chris and Red, for that, those perspectives. And um, on this entire question, I think. What is uh, important is to also look at past policies that the U.S. has pursued for its national security and the degree to which they have tended to emphasize immediate concerns. And again, I will reiterate a point that I had made in my introduction, and that is the degree to which the NSS and the Bush administration focused on the war on terror. Now, what is what did this do? Right. So I was recently reading Chris Bros and. Uh, What I found out was that this entire problem that we created of A 2 AD, like, you know, um, it was identified in the 1990s, right? Like, you know, the the U.S. was already thinking about the problems its platforms could deal with, like, you know, uh, back, I think, two decades, three decades ago, right? And what that means is that this overt focus on, like, you know, proximate and immediate issues has led to... uh, A national security policy that has not adequately concerned, it's not looked at, like, you know, the broader and long-term strategic issues, putting the U.S. at a disadvantage. So I'm not certain whether, like, you know, I mean, um, it is going to be sustainable, right? Like, you know, I cannot uh, make that sort of um, speculative argument right now. But what I can say is that the previous approach of looking only at the immediate national security issues has failed. And it has failed quite decisively, uh, in my opinion. And in that context, I think this new approach, where yes, the um, immediate concerns of dealing with Russian aggression is dealt with, is emphasized, but without losing focus on the strategic, like you know, horizon where China looms large. I think. Um, I think it is important, even if it is a very ambitious sort of strategy. And given the failure of the previous approaches, I think this is necessary. Uh, this is a necessary approach for the U.S. to pursue.
0: Very well put. Thank you. Uh, Sarkar if we could stay with you for a moment, I wanted to ask, as the future is your domain as a next-generation practitioner, um, how do you think the challenges posed by Russia and China will evolve in the future for the United States, for India, for for the world, perhaps? Uh,
3: that actually uh, keeps me up at night sometimes, like, you know, that particular question. Um, but I think I would agree with the fundamental premise that this national security strategy has sort of presented. And that is that the Russia threat is a disruption to the current world order. But it is not indicative of a change in the fundamental order itself, right? Like, you know, it the Russians do not possess the economic, and the diplomatic resources to um, completely reorient and reconceptualize that international order. Whereas um, I think Beijing has that propensity, and I think that is what we are going to see, that as, like, you know, I mean, we uh, go through this decade and enter the next two decades, right? Like, I think what China will try and do is it will try and sort of... um, Use the existing institutions it has created to push um, much more of its domestic agenda than what it has done in the past. It will try and displace uh, several of, like you know, the U.S. Uh, led institutions that we've seen in the past. Right? Already, we've seen China sort of reimagine its approach to the Belt and Road Initiative after the after the failures that it had uh, previously encountered and the criticisms of ensnaring countries and debt traps, it is trying to change the way it goes about these sort of um, institutions. So I think that's how um, the China threat will evolve in the future, where it will try and completely reorient the fabric of the international order and change it from what we currently see uh, as the rules-based order, right? And um, I think the last point that I'd like to emphasize here is that so far, like, you know, when China has been giving aid to uh, several countries uh, under its different programs, it has been conditioned by this idea of non-interference that, you know, it will respect like, you know, the the autonomy and the decision-making of that concerned government. But uh, as the future goes on, it will be interesting to see if China decides to change that, like, you know, um, approach and start playing a much more active role uh, in deciding how countries' domestic politics plays out.
0: I think that's very well put. Um, the uh, threat to rules-based order has, has certainly become a uh, another threat um, that we're, we're picking up here. Um, obviously one that Rhett has mentioned several times. Rhett, um, same question to you. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, well, I I agree um, pretty much completely with you, Sikhar, and think I think your kind of analysis of China's revisionism um, to the world-based order is getting to the point of being glaring. Um, it will be interesting to see sort of how that evolves over time, but I see that as the challenge with a lot more staying power compared to, you know, the the disruption that Russia has caused. Um, but also going back to those transnational security concerns, I think that the biggest challenge will be addressing those without letting competitors who might be undermining the system like China, without letting them take advantage of the uh, economic and political situations that those transnational issues like climate change will bring about. None of the major powers in the world want to go to war with each other. Um, The question to me within that kind of rules based order where some countries are more bought into it and others try to take advantage of it. And I wish I had an answer to this question. Is can we address these transnational issues like climate change without being taken advantage of and without losing prosperity at home? Very astute
0: question, one that I'm sure um, we'll be working on for the better part of our lives and perhaps our children's lives and onward. Paula, to you, what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, two quick thoughts. I think it brings some questions as to how the U.S. will reevaluate its diplomacy going forward. This is definitely something you see in the new national security strategy. It takes a wider context that we're willing to work with any states that keep up the tenets of the current order. I think it'll play a crucial role when there are points of conflict between the U.S. and China or Russia in this case. I think both Russia and China pose challenges to how we've done diplomacy and how we want to see it in the future, both externally but also within U.S. government agencies. And secondly, I know this is a point, you know, kind of not very, it's not very direct, but it's something that I started thinking about after I had read um, the national security strategy. It mentions competition many times, especially in regards to China. I think everyone was (laughs) evident to see that. Part of this competition is centered around innovation and technology. And I worry, I sometimes worry that in the race to the top, we don't stop and think about how new innovation and technology could cause unforeseen issues in the future. I think it's important to make sure that we're bringing a level of awareness as we keep moving forward, because forward doesn't always mean safe or even ethical. So as you know, the revolution with technology um, and innovation keeps moving forward for energy, climate change, and weapons. This keeps on going forever. I think we've had mistakes in the past where we don't really stop and think, how is this innovation and technology that we're that we're innovating right now? How is that going to play out in the future? What kind of implications could be made with this? And I think it's important on the way that that we are doing that inevitably that we stop and ask ourselves, how could this sort of innovation and race to the top with China have bigger effects than what we see right now in in the present? I
0: think that's very well put, Paula. Um, Certainly the uncertainties of the future uh, continue to keep us and all the other security practitioners uh, awake at night. Uh, especially in regards to the, the large looming problems um, such as climate change, which you mentioned. Um, so, actually, sticking with you, Paul, I'd like to ask: COVID nineteen, climate change are top of mind uh, for many folks, especially as you know we see extreme weather uh, weather events rage across the world, and we continue to deal with the side effects of the COVID nineteen pandemic. That said, are these pressing issues adequately addressed in the national security strategy? Should more be done?
2: Thanks for asking, Chris. I think two points first come to mind. As a person, you know, as a US citizen, and of course, in a very privileged position when it comes to climate change, and, you know, even the COVID-19 pandemic, I think it's good that I outline that I'm not in a position that a lot of people have, in other parts of the world, experience these two big issues, um, and the effects of them. So first and foremost, you know, I can only speak so much um, to how the national security strategy really does emphasize this, whether enough or not enough. I am a bit cynical just because, once again, the United States is in the privileged position to kind of respond to either climate change, disasters, you know, weather events, or even pandemics much more quickly than any other state in the world. Um, We are in that position to do that. So I've I've heard, you know, from colleagues and friends that despite the national security strategy outlining climate change and this broader definition of security if you will, since we're really not in the same position that a lot of countries in the global south are when it comes to the effects of, you know, bigger transnational issues that we may say it's important to us, but will we really do anything about it because it won't really directly affect us because we'll have the infrastructure and the money and the ability to react to this much quicker than any of the countries affected. It is typically the global South that gets primarily affected by these things. And I'm afraid that despite you know a national security strategy outlining these issues much more than any previous other ones, that we still might fail to adequately address them because we're just in a position already where we're all favored to do well and to respond to these uh, issues.
0: I think that's an important point. Thank you, Paula. Um, so on that same point, uh, Sarkar, I'd like to ask your your perspective on this.
2: So I think,
3: I think Paula raised some um, excellent points, right? Because while the US has identified, you know, the correct issues in general, right? Um, it has tended to sort of disregard certain regions that face the brunt of these issues, right? Like, you know, and if you um, take, for example, Latin America, right, which was disproportionately affected by the number of pandemic-related deaths, or if you look at South Asia right now, you look at the floods that are going on in Pakistan, right? Like, you know, I mean, once in a generation um natural calamities that are going on uh, across the world. But much of the NSS has treated these regions as almost an afterthought, right? Like, you know, um, they've they've not, I mean, it, it's paying lip service in essence to um, some of these um, countries and regions. And I think that represents a problem because you can't focus on these issues, but at the same time, Um, disregard the regions that are most highly affected uh, by them. And I think that also ties into the second part, which I wanted to uh, look at in addressing this question. And that is that the the message on climate change is very divided on partisan lines, right? So you essentially have one party that is very pro-dealing with the issue of climate change. But if you read the Trump nss right like you know you will realize that it is saying almost the complete opposite thing that like you know the current like you know uh, document is uh, espousing right and that represents a problem because you know people have constantly been talking about how the republicans might win um the house or the senate in the upcoming midterm elections the 2024 election is in in the horizon right and what i'm worried about is that while this nss does address and talk about these issues i'm i'm unclear how it's going to make it a priority across different um, administrations and i'm i'm worried like you know that if there is the prospect of a republican government after 2024 what is the safeguard that will prevent them from nullifying a lot of the progress made in the current administration right So I think what the NSS um, and maybe succeeding policies that implement it need to do is engage more effectively with regions where um, this issue of climate change is is so rampant, right? Where the pandemic has had such a catastrophic uh, effect, but at the same time, ensure that these climate change uh, regulations and these other um, approaches to transnational issues are stable and long term and not just the priority of one government.
0: I think you bring up several very good points there, um, especially on um, the limitations of our own government and the shifting political agendas of um, various parties, Um, and even invite us to think that perhaps maybe a more global response on the UN level or otherwise uh, might be more relevant and pertinent to uh, this issue. But moving to Rhett, um, for the last word, um, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I thought in terms of the uh, NSS itself, they were issues that were dealt with relatively equitably in terms of how much attention they got, um, particularly as these aren't the traditional things that people think about when they consider national security. Um, I mean, up until the last year or two, it certainly isn't something that I would have thought about when I think about national security. Uh, Particularly, though, in an application, I agree with both Paula and Sakar that the most impacted regions by these issues aren't talked about much. Um, and I think, while that's not exactly a good thing, obviously, um, I think investing in those regions is a little bit of an opportunity here to work with some of the underrepresented countries and to try to build some uh, more solid relationships, hopefully, which would be economically beneficial for each of us, which would help us kind of compete with China, which you'd don't necessarily giving any attention to these issues. so the u s doesn't give as much as it should, but I think we're still giving a little bit more than some of our competitors. But hopefully I mean we could we could use these challenges as an opportunity to to kind of establish more of that international cooperation we've been talking about a lot today. So I think from our position, like Paula was saying, we're the probably the least impacted country by these issues, but our our power and sort of gives us an opportunity to interact with those more fragile regions in terms of uh, their effects for by COVID or climate change, what have you, at least ideally.
0: Thank you, Rhett. I think you guys have all made um, very powerful points on many different aspects of the national security strategy, which obviously is supposed to encompass all um, and everything and can be a bit overwhelming. Um, so I just want to thank you all for for joining us. I think You've given um, our audience quite a bit to think about. Um, and we thank you for giving your perspective, especially, um, Sir Car from your, your, your perspective from a non-U.S. lens, but also all of you um, from a, a generational lens in terms of the next generation of future security practitioners, national security practitioners. You know, I think this is truly something that we need to listen to. I think the current um, practitioners need to listen. And I, I hope our generation listens and the generation below us listens. I think these are important conversations and, I'm glad we're being had. So I want to thank you all for joining us. Thank you so much, Chris. As a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are the views of the participants alone and do not represent the views or opinions of Georgetown University, the Precision Guided Podcast, or any other agency. Thank you for listening to the Precision Guided Podcast. Follow the Georgetown Security Studies Review on social media to stay up to date on the latest Precision Guided Podcast episodes and GSSR content. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or you can visit our website at georgetownsecuritystudiesreview.org. Thank you to all our listeners out there. This is the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review.